You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. Well, this is definitely not the way that I expected that we would finish up the book of Revelation as we've been in this now for, I believe, 37 weeks. And certainly not the setting, certainly not the way that I expected this last sermon to come across. But what a better place to be as we, again, find ourselves in a situation where there is a wide range of emotions, people who are are scared, people who are sick, people who have died across the, the entire world, but also people who are feeling just the anxiety of uncertainty and difficulty and separation. Also people who are, are flustered and frustrated and angry, not knowing what to believe or how to think about all of this. What better place to find ourselves than in a passage of scripture that assures us about our hope that can never be taken away? And a reminder that we serve a God who is making all things new. A God who one day will send his son, his resurrected son, who bought for us our salvation, sent him into the world to redeem and restore and heal the brokenness of our world and also bring resurrection to his people, to those who follow and trust in him. And so we're going to look this morning in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verses six through 21. And we're going to see how we should respond to not just what we've looked at over the past few weeks, but what we've seen over the entirety of the book of Revelation. And we're going to see a calling to believe in the return of Christ, to anticipate the return of Christ, and to pray for the return of Christ. And so let's look at that passage together. Again, coming from Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 21. This is the word of our God. And he, the angel, said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what soon must take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps these words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehoods. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. 
I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. And we say, thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we just ask and pray that you bless not only these words, but all the words that we've read through the book of Revelation. That as we come to the end of this beautiful and complex and difficult and mesmerizing and mysterious and empowering book, that God, we would not be the same. And as we see John receive this promise of hope, God, I pray that we would never turn away from that hope. We would cling to that hope. We would be a people of unwavering faith, peace, and hope. And that you would indeed teach us to believe in the reality of Christ's return to make everything right and everything new, that we would anticipate it and long for it and that we would be committed to praying to see Christ return. And in the meantime, that you would give us the strength that we need to do the work that we are called to do for the cause of the gospel, the expansion of the kingdom, and your glory and the good of our neighbors. And we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As Jesus and his disciples were going about their ministry, they happened upon a group of people that were in a really heated argument with some of the scribes. And when the people saw Jesus, they turned all their attention to him and they ran towards him. And he says, hey guys, what's going on? And they begin to tell him the story about a man and his son that's in their midst. And the son had what they described as an unclean spirit that was an incredible difficulty for him. And the father comes to Jesus as any father would who was broken about the condition of his son. And he comes to Jesus and he says, can you, can you heal him? If you can, can you come and heal my son? And Jesus says, if I can, anything is possible through prayer. And the father in a moment of incredible honesty and vulnerability looks at Jesus and he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And of course, Jesus goes on to heal his son. And it's a beautiful story of the redemptive power of Christ and of prayer. But that phrase, that admission offered up by the father is something that resonates a lot in my life and has been a part of my prayer life for years and years and years. As, as early as I can remember reading that story, I remember just feeling the resonance because my life is one that has been wrapped up in, in battles between faith and doubt. And I struggle. And so often I have to come to God, no matter what the situation is and pray very specifically, God, I believe, but I really need you to help my unbelief. And that is especially true, at least for me. I don't know about how all of you have dealt with this, but that is especially true in the book of Revelation 
and preparing these sermons and even preaching these sermons and reflecting on these sermons and dealing with these passages of scripture over and over and over again for the last several months, I found myself often reading things thinking, I want to believe that. I want to trust in that. I want to know that that is true. I want to believe and I do believe, but God help me in the midst of my unbelief. And revelation can do that. Revelation can cause that in our lives. And so we have to come to this passage of scripture and ask that God is going to lead us and guide us and help us to know what is trustworthy and true. And as John begins with this last part of the revelation, he gets that affirmation again from this angel. And it says, these words are trustworthy and true. Just like we saw that last week, there is a confidence that's being put into the listener, that's being put into the reader, that what we're about to hear, what we're about to experience is something in which we can place our trust in which we can trust fully in what God is doing and what God is speaking in this plan that God has. But then there's something else that comes in this passage. John says, he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God, the spirits of prophet has sent his, son, his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And then in verse seven, again, he says, and behold, I am coming soon. And again, just like we saw at the beginning of the book of Revelation, the word soon creates a really unique difficulty and a hardship in interpreting this book because these words were given to John almost 2,000 years ago. And so as we see the angels say these things that must soon take place and, and God speaking, that Jesus declaring, I am coming soon, that can create part of the difficulty in approaching the book of Revelation. And as we've seen throughout the entirety of this book, the book of Revelation is at the same time accessible and also at times unknowable. The book of Revelation talks about things that are soon and also things that seem so very far away. And because of that, the door for doubt, and I think even more dangerous, the door for apathy, is always creaking open. The ability to doubt that any of this is true and that any of this is real. Should I even believe any of the stuff that's in the book of Revelation? It seems so beyond anything that I could possibly understand or comprehend. And it seems like these things have been promised and they've just been sitting there in the ether for now thousands of years. How do I hold on to that hope? Maybe none of this is true. Maybe I should just walk away. Or we can believe these things in theory because maybe you've grown up in church or you're a follower of Christ. And so because the book of Revelation is in the Bible that we believe these things in the back of our minds, but we've never really worked out the fact that this is a reality, that Christ's return to make everything right and make everything new is a promise that we are supposed to put our faith and our hope into. And I think this is why there's such a desperate desire to find direct fulfillment to these prophecies why Christians, not just now, not just over the past 200 years, but Christians over the last 2000 years have been looking at these prophecies in the book of Revelation and been desperate to figure out how they apply directly and immediately to me and how my life and my circumstances and the world in which I live is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. 
And so we clutch history books, we clutch newspapers, we clutch our social media, and we look for all these things and we try to draw the dots of, oh, well, this must be this, and this must be this. And if we stretch it far enough, maybe, just maybe, we can somehow tie in the coronavirus to the the imagery of wormwood and disease and pestilence and quarantine, and we can start talking about all these different things because we feel like if I can find a direct answer to what this means right now, now, it will almost prove these things to be true. And so we spend less time focusing on the actual content of the book of Revelation and more time with conspiracy theories and hopes and dreams and trying to find one-to-one comparisons that often aren't there in the text. But we have to remember that it isn't the details of the, prof- of the fulfillment of these prophecies or even the prophet that's speaking that we are called to have faith in, but we're called to put our faith in. I love how it's worded here. The God of the spirits of the prophets, the one who sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. The words in the book of Revelation, they're not trustworthy and true because of their style. They're not true because they're so fantastic and they capture our minds and our imaginations. They're not true because of the the prophet that's involved in this. They're not trustworthy or true because of their modern relevance or lack thereof, what we can tie in together. They are true because of the one who has spoken them. And when we look through the Old Testament narrative, anytime God makes a promise, he puts his bona fides with it. He puts his resume alongside of it saying, I am the Lord, your God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who brought your fathers out of slavery and brought you into the promised land. I am the God who is never late. I am the God who has never failed. He shows us time and time again that as we've referenced multiple times this book, that all of his promises are yes and amen. And he puts his name on that. He puts his divinity on that. And now here again in the book of Revelation, he does the same thing. He calls himself the God of the spirits of the prophets, saying in verse 13 that he is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so when the angel says these words are trustworthy and true, he's reminding us that God is trustworthy and true. And so even in the times when we don't fully understand, even in the times when those those seeds of doubt and panic begin to creep in, we have to find ourselves coming back to an understanding of who God is and what he has done. There are plenty of things in the book of Revelation that we can know for sure. From the very beginning, we've looked at this book as a fifth gospel. This is the revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ, showing us who he is as the risen, resurrected, and ascended King of kings and Lord of lords. It's showing us that God has a plan to bring the world to rights, to put everything back to the way that it's supposed to be, but even beyond that, to bring it to perfection, including those of us who have put our faith and our hope in Jesus Christ. But there are also some things in this book that just exist in the mystery, that exist in the difficulty of interpretation and some things that are even beyond what we can possibly understand this time, this side of seeing it in its fullness. And in the places where that mystery comes, in the places where we find ourselves wrapped up in uncertainty and maybe even at times confusion of figuring out how we interpret and how we understand and how this book impacts our lives. 
We need to learn to trust the promise-keeping God. I would encourage you to, to take inventory of your life and see all the times when God has answered your prayers, when God has come to your defense, when God has protected you in times of great difficulty or in times of great need. Write those things down, hold them close to your heart. And in the times when uncertainty and doubt and apathy creep in, remind yourself of the God who has never failed you and the God who will never fail you. But we also need to pray for faith beyond sight. We need to go to our God at the, in those times and say, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. God, I believe, but help my lack of understanding. God, I believe, but help my uncertainty. Give me faith. Give me clarity. God, give me a peace that surpasses all understanding. And ask that God would help us to believe in the reality of our redemption the reality of our resurrection, the reality that one day Christ will actually return and set all things to right and bring about new creation and newness in his people. And so we need to believe in his return. But we also need to learn to anticipate his return. In verse seven through nine, it says, and behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And so we've got John out here trying to worship angels again. This is not the first time in several chapters that John has tried to worship an angel. But I don't think that it's misplaced affections. This isn't John desperately trying to throw his worship somewhere else and to fall into idolatry. But more than anything, this shows his level of anticipation. That with all the things that John has seen, all the things that have been revealed to him, things that, that are awesome and astonishing as we read them. I can't imagine how overwhelming it was for John to see these things given to him in a vision as he's seen Christ in his fullness, as he's seen God's plan for his world and for his people. John is just so overwhelmed that this message that he has received is just burning in his bones and he has to throw his affection and he has to throw out his worship. All that he's seen has him bursting into praise. It's just a little misdirected at this time. And I love that the angel doesn't necessarily scold him because there seems to be an understanding there. He says, no, 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 it's not me. Don't worship me. You must not do that. I'm just a fellow servant. But then the angel takes John's worship and he redirects it and puts it exactly where it's supposed to be and calls him to worship God. But I think there's something to learn in the way that John is responding to this. Because we talked about from the very beginning of this book, the book of Revelation is a book that tends to either be abused or neglected. But for most of us, there is a hesitation to encounter the book of Revelation because there is so much mystery. There can be so much difficulty in interpretation and, and all of those things, plus some of the things that have, have come into American theology over the past 150 or so years have created a sense of fear in approaching this book. 
But the reality is we should have a desire to return to Revelation. I'm hoping that as we finish this book, that this won't be the last time that we go back to the book of Revelation in our personal Bible studies and in our community groups and just in our, our times of reading the Bible. We need to come back to the book of Revelation often because it's the purpose of the book of Revelation to increase our anticipation. I love the note in the Reformation Study Bible along with this chapter of scripture, it says that revelation is designed not only to inform and assure Christians about God's final purposes, but to increase their longing for God and the realization of his purpose. Even in the things that we don't fully understand and can't fully grasp, those things should captivate our minds and our hearts and lead us towards wanting to know God more, to having a deeper affection for Christ and his gospel, to trust more deeply in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it should make us anxious, not in the negative way, but with great anticipation and eagerness to see Christ return and to see all of these things take place. But the problem is, as anticipation builds, so does impatience. And usually patience and anticipation don't go hand in hand. But we've seen the calling throughout this book of the Bible to be faithful as we wait and to understand what it means as a follower of Jesus to both anticipate his return and wait for his return. And so it makes sense to go back one more time to something that we've seen throughout the entirety of this book. And the angel gives to John and ultimately by proxy to us, some marching orders, some instructions for life in the in-between. And so what do we do? How do we anticipate the return of Christ? Well, let's look at what the angel says here. It starts here in verse nine, as John is trying to worship the angel, the angel says, hey buddy, don't do that. Don't worship me. I'm just a fellow servant of God. But then right there at the end of the verse, worship God. We've talked about the fact that the book of Revelation is a book of worship, revealing to us who Jesus is, revealing to us the majesty and the magnitude of the throne of God and the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through the churches. We've seen how much God loves us, how much God cares for us, the fact that God has a plan for us. We've seen the beauty of the gospel that he takes us, even though we are sinful and have fallen short and deserve nothing from him and through Christ redeems us and restores us in a relationship with him and gives us an inheritance that's beyond our wildest imagination. And that should motivate our hearts and minds to a constant state of worship. We should have that same feeling of John where the words of revelation are just burning in our bones like fire. And all we can do is praise God because of it. I know it's an awkward situation this morning, but I hope as we sing and as we confess and as we're hearing God's word right now, that even though we're scattered and apart from one another, that our hearts are united in spirit-filled, truth-filled worship. And we need to make sure that from this moment on, every breath that we're given is a breath of worship to the God who is and who was and who is to come. The God who not only saves us by his grace and mercy, but the God who will one day redeem us and restore us in full and we will be with him forever. We need to be practicing for eternity by worshiping God in freedom here and now. But then in verse 10, we also see the calling to spread the word. 
Because the angel says to John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. And John is given strict instructions to take these words that he's received and spread them out to the congregations, to spread them out to the churches all over the first century world. And these visions that John received have been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And now as we receive these words, we're not meant to take them and hide them up in our hearts and just think about them quietly. But it's our responsibility, as we've seen over the past couple weeks, to be ambassadors of God's reconciliation. To be little trees of life pointing towards God's eternity when it comes to how we love and care for our neighbors, how we bring healing into our world, both spiritually, mentally, physically, and emotionally. That we proclaim the gospel with boldness making it known just like Jesus did through his ministry, that it is the calling of every single person to repent and believe in the gospel, to know that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again and make that message very clear to a world that is lost and broken and dying. The book of Revelation calls all of us, no matter our giftedness, no matter our comfort level, to be evangelists and witnesses to what we have seen and what we have learned. And so we need to spread the word, to spread the gospel, to spread the good news of the kingdom in our conversations, in not only our churches, but in the public square and all of the places we go to look for every opportunity to share the goodness of Jesus with others, but also in the way that we speak to and about others and the way that we love and care for our neighbors and our enemies alike. And so we need to spread the goodness of the gospel. We also need to keep living. In verse 11, it says, let the evildoers still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. And that's a particularly interesting thought to think about right now because life has been radically interrupted. And I've seen some articles going around with C.S. Lewis when he was talking about the atomic bomb and telling people to live their life normally. And that probably was true in that particular instance. The difficulty with that is you can't catch the atomic bomb. And if it did strike, it would be over. But this is a little different. It interrupts our lives a little bit. The, the fact that we are being asked to, to have some social distance is a very difficult thing for a church that is called to be communal. And so right now, life is a little bit interrupted and maybe for a little bit of a season. We don't really know what that looks like. But just like the calling that God gave to the people of Israel as they were going into Babylon and their life was greatly interrupted, the rhythms of their life were changed for, for a very long season in their case. It is our responsibility to keep living as followers of Christ. Because he says, let the evildoers still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. But on the other side, these words that apply to followers of Christ, let the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. And no matter what abruptions come in our life, the, the, the calling that God has given us, God's will and purpose for his followers remains the same, that it is our responsibility to live lives of holiness and righteousness to make sure that we don't look at even opportunities like this as an opportunity to let dissension come into our hearts, to let unpure or unholy talk come out of our mouths or gossip or slander or lies, to live lives above reproach and to live lives of righteousness. And we've been given opportunities now to put our righteousness into action. We have neighbors that are fearful. We have neighbors that are confused. 
We have organizations in our community that are caring for children who receive their lunches from schools every day and don't know where their lunch is going to come from. And we have organizations that are going to provide lunches for them. We have organizations that provide meals for people and that are going to deliver to elderly people who feel like they have a certain level of anxiety about coming out of their homes right now. We have people who need peace that we can provide. And so we have an opportunity to live our righteousness out loud, but not even during this season. But as long as Christ tarries, our responsibility is not to be distracted by all the things in the world around us, but to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, to keep our hearts set on holiness, to live a life worthy of the calling that we've been given through Christ Jesus, and then to go out and to practice what God has given us to live out the good works that he has designed for us since before the foundations of the earth. And so we need to keep living, but keep living righteously. But we also need to trust. In verse 14, it says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. And we need to hold on to that promise that he who began the good work in us will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. That salvation is a seal. It's an assurance. It's a promise. And he's not finished with it yet. And that for anyone who has put their faith in Christ Jesus, anyone who has followed after Jesus in the gospel, not only have our sins been forgiven, not only has our guilt and our shame been taken away, not only have we been reconciled to God, but here we have the promise that we will enter into God's good and perfect city that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks and we will rest there with him forever. And so we need to believe and to trust and to hope in that promise. And then finally, we need to come. We need to come to God. In verse 16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Part of this beauty of salvation is that we get to come boldly before the throne of grace. That while it may not be perfected at this point in time right now, we do have the ability to enter into the presence of God. That Jesus has bridged the gap that sin separated and brought God and his people back together. And as we anticipate what will be perfect and glorious in eternity, we get to practice that now by realizing that there is no sin too great. There is no panic too severe that can keep us from coming into the arms of our Father. And so we need to come to God each and every day, coming to him in prayer, coming to him in worship, coming to him through the reading of his word, coming to him together as we're able to come together again and meet as a congregation. We have the responsibility to come and to invite others to come along with us into the goodness of this salvation. We need to learn to live each day in anticipation for the Lord's day. And our lives should communicate to the world around us that we are expecting something awesome and we are preparing for it to happen. And so we believe, 
We anticipate. And then we pray. We pray for the return of Christ. And I love, we've talked so much about the parallel and the symmetry of of Revelation and Genesis. But I love that the Bible begins with God speaking. That it's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the first words that we see spoken are when God says, let there be light. That the Bible begins with, with the voice of God. And it ends with the voice of humanity. That God gives us the last word here. In verse 20, it says, he who testifies to these things. John says, I am saying this. Jesus says, surely I'm coming soon. And then John says, amen. Come Lord Jesus. So Jesus, he who testifies these things says, surely I'm coming soon. And John responds by saying, amen. Let it be so. Come soon, Lord Jesus. And the book ends by saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And so that needs to be our prayer. That needs to be our hope that we join our hearts with John's. As John is now sitting at at the, the father's feet, waiting for Christ to come and to bring that resurrection. We also, with John, with the martyrs around the throne of God, with all the Christians throughout the ages and all the Christians around the world right now should desperately be praying even so Come quickly, Lord Jesus. It should be a prayer, not just when things are bad. I think that for most of us, the times when we offer up this prayer, it's in times like right now, where things feel crazy and things feel uncertain and people are doing obnoxious and and evil and wicked things. When we see the horrors around the world, when we experience tragedy, that's when those words leave our mouths. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But how often do those words leave our mouths when everything is going good? How often do we have a day with bright skies and no sickness and no tragedy and no shame, a day where everything seems to be going well, and yet still we look around and say, oh, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because this is good, but I know and I hope that eternity is better. Each and every day, no matter what may come, no matter what happens, we need to be in prayer saying, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And so I just want to take a moment And our confession of faith is is going to be that last phrase there. And so, again, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. But I just want to read verse 20 as our confession of faith and as our prayer. And I want to ask you and encourage you to pray. And to ask God to lead us and guide us in all things. And so let's confess these words together in verse 20 saying, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness and your grace. And God, I just ask right now that you give us a certainty of the return of Christ, that we would believe that you would help our unbelief in those moments. God, that we would have an eagerness and an anticipation in our hearts. And God, that we would pray for your return. Father, right now, we have the double uncertainty of both not knowing what's going on necessarily in society, in our world, but also God trying to to deal with all that we've learned in the book of Revelation. 
But God, I pray you give us understanding where we need it. I pray that you give us faith where we don't have it and that you give us peace through all things. And we ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.